The truth is that I like people as long as I don't have to travel with them. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. I'm somewhat ill right now. It's a double whammy of a long-standing chest infection picked up in Kathmandu, not a city noted for its good air, surprisingly, uh, and a rotten cold that combined all means that I can't go 10 metres without either needing to cough or blow my nose. It's also made recording podcasts difficult, as you can imagine. Uh, I'm also on the move at the moment, but I'm trying not to let that stop me producing my podcasts either. The last one only crashed my tablet's copy of Audacity twice, so that's an improvement on the last time I tried to pod on the move. I think that was uh, episode three, the anti-bucket list episode. Uh, And if it was, then that's quite a strange circular turn of events. See, if you've been a follower of my podcast from the early days, when I uh, tried to make these things weekly, you may remember that episode, and my firm belief that there were certain countries I'd probably never visit, as there didn't seem to be much there to attract or interest me. Now. If you're following me on Instagram, you might have noticed my recent travels. I posted a lot on IG stories last month about my adventures somewhere slightly off-brand. Wide sandy beaches, palm trees, lots of sun. Don't worry, I haven't been replaced by a clone with a beach fetish who's disappeared off to Mauritius or somewhere. I did, however, venture for two weeks around the Asian island archipelago of Philippines, a country which I may have been a bit dismissive of in that very podcast. In fact, looking back, I actually said something like, When I have looked into it, nothing has really grabbed my interest, and I've always been distracted by shinier things or places in the region. That said, in that very podcast, I also mentioned that my feelings were those at the time I recorded it, and so my thoughts and feelings about visiting certain countries may well change over time. Though I still remain to be convinced about Chad, and they don't have a tourist board, so it's hard to curry favour with them to change my mind. My trip to Philippines was uh, unexpected, to say the least. It was originally going to be Indonesia. Well, I mean, it was originally, originally going to be El Salvador, but you know how my plans change on a regular basis. I'm not a planner. However, I know someone who is, and this was another unusual variation on my usual travels. I spent two weeks in the country, spanning Chinese New Year. One of my best friends, a regular contributor to this very pod indeed, teaches English in China and so, at a push, was able to get some vacation time. She wanted to explore somewhere closer to home, as it were, and was originally contemplating Indonesia, but was put off by it being the wet season. She likes hiking, is scared of flying, so bad weather affects her in both these eyes. So switched to looking at Philippines instead. She's a solo traveller like me, but didn't want to take her first trip in Southeast Asia on her own, so wanted someone to go with her. 
Her pot of comfortable travel partners, available to join her, and wouldn't complain vociferously about conditions in a country that wasn't truly first world, was rather limited, as she'll go on to explain later. So off we went. It did feel kind of weird to be travelling around a country only a few months previously I'd said I'd probably never visit. Some of my beliefs were quite well founded. Certainly in the places we visited, most of the reason for going there were things like beaches, diving, snorkelling, swimming, etc. But overall, I found it a very pleasant place to be. The people were incredibly friendly and always smiling all the time, with the possible exception of Cayenne de Oro, but even here there was still friendliness. I had a free taxi ride because a taxi driver saw me walking the streets of the city with my backpack on a really hot day and insisted that he give me a free ride to the Central Mall in an air-conditioned car. He refused to accept payment. The locals gave the impression of bending over backwards to help you. In our case, our hostel in Puerto Princesa on Palawan tried to arrange tickets for us for the ferry between El Nido in the far north of Palawan and the further island of Coron, because overrunning maintenance had knocked out one of the ferries and there was a backlog of passengers. In the event, they failed, but they still managed to get us our money back despite our being five hours away at the time. I did spend some time on beaches, and indeed went on one of the island hopping tours from El Nido. As a wood elf and land-based animal, this is quite out of my comfort zone. Those of you who know me will also remember that I can't swim. My travel companion, Laura, by contrast, is a dolphin. The two worlds collided on Napcan Beach in El Nido, where an attempt was made to rectify this. While it didn't succeed, and she didn't manage to make me to learn to swim, it is true that with her help I do feel a bit more confident in the water now, and I'm prepared to go much deeper than I ever imagined I would. It's quite interesting to see waves from behind, before they crash on the beach. They're kind of smooth and glassy. I'd never noticed this before. I do, however, wish to apologise to her for nearly drowning her at Hidden Beach. On the island tour, she was guiding me back to the boat, and I was a little unsteady and may have pulled her under the water briefly. Eh. On another tack, one of the in-jokes we had was that on Travel Twitter, there's bloggers that regularly post links to articles with titles like Is the food in Philippines really that bad? Well... The pizza in El Nido was good. In truth, we didn't eat actually that much of Philippine food, mainly because our hostels tended to not be near many eateries. Uh, We did notice they do have a strong passion for bakeries, selling mainly donuts and overly sweet bread. They also really like fried chicken. The other fairly unique thing was their fast food restaurants, including McDonald's, offering, of all things, spaghetti. I have no idea why. So overall, I really liked the country, and I'm glad I went and gave it a chance. It reminded me a bit of Indonesia, but, to coin a phrase, more Western, uh, as I'd kind of expected, actually. As an aside, I was mostly surprised by how omnipresent the English language was. On a couple of the aircraft we took, there were no announcements at all in Filipino. See, sometimes you have to be very flexible with your ideas and feelings when you travel, and open your mind to different experiences. One of which, for me, is the very fact of travelling with someone else. To acknowledge that, when I originally started writing up this pod, it was not long after Valentine's Day. That shows you how bad I've been ill. And more importantly, International Quirky Alone Day, the day that celebrates the affirmation that you can be on your own if you want to be, and happily ignore society's pressures to settle down with a partner. It is, of course, completely coincidental. The two days are the same date. Thus, the topic on this podcast is solo travel, and not luggage, as previously advertised. If I'm allowed to change my mind about Philippines, I'm allowed to change my mind about podcast topics, all right? Some people prefer to travel solo because they're introvert. Others prefer to travel in a group. Uh, I mean, it's quite different. I mean, when you travel solo, the good thing are 
you can do whatever you want to do uh, with a group. I mean, you're never, never alone because you always have friends around you. So that's a good thing. So it really depends on who you are, your personality. Some people just don't understand how people can travel by themselves. Other people hate to travel in a group. So yeah, it really depends on who you are. Rubens from Being Around the Globe there, giving a quick summary of solo travel v group travel. I've been travelling solo for a number of years to destinations across all the inhabited continents, but I suspect my findings and answers may be unusual, possibly due to the way I travel. I hear other solo travellers say about tours, cruises, etc., having solo traveller discriminatory prices, for instance, but the way I travel and the places I travel to, I've kind of never found that to be an issue. For one thing, I tend to travel and book everything individually rather than going through an agent to book a, what you might call, holiday. This means that, firstly, I scour online fair comparison sites for flights, and then I seek out each individual place to stay. Quite often, this is something I don't do until I wake up that morning, and sometimes even walk up to a hotel or hostel and say, have you got a room? Though my introverted nature prevents me doing this too often, and what normally ends up happening is, when I wake up in that morning... I will go online and see where's available. This gives me much more flexibility and it means I'm not tied in to any one company's pricing structure. Most of the time, though, I tend to stay in backpacker hostels. Here you pay per bed in a dorm environment. It's pretty much designed for solo travellers. I have noticed the tendency for private rooms in dorm accommodation to be remarkably expensive relative to the cost of the dorm beds, but they're not something I tend to look deeply into. If I need some time alone, I'll tend to book Airbnb, to be honest. Now, some people rave about hostels as being a great place for solo travellers, since you're forced into the social environment to meet people and get chatting. For me, this is very much dependent on the hostel itself, and being both introverted and somewhat older than the average backpacker, I tend to actively seek out quieter hostels. But I get the idea. I mean, certainly it's a sound principle for the more typical solo traveller. Uh, this doesn't mean I'm never social, and depending on the hostel, and a decent social area helps... In a surprising number of hostels, there doesn't seem to be one. Even I've managed to speak to people, although admittedly, they have spoken to me first. This is an important distinction. In one hostel in Jerusalem, I ended up playing backgammon all night against a South African woman, while in Gdansk, I accidentally met up with a German backpacker. Basically, I was leaving as she was arriving uh, the first night I was there, and I ended up spending the entire next day exploring the city with her. But as a solo traveller, meeting people isn't just restricted to hostels. Now, one of my Instagram friends, I met a lady called Alexa Eve in a restaurant in Kandy, Sri Lanka. I was just about to pay and leave when she turned up. She started chatting to me and we ended up having a beer together somewhere in the back streets. Similarly, in Lebanon, I was wandering through the ruins of Baalbek when these two people... Well, they were in the way of my photos, basically. But we exchanged pleasantries, and I ended up walking around the rest of the ruins with them. This was someone who later became another uh, Instagram friend, Agostina, Guga013, being guided by her Lebanese friend. Now, with regards to hotels and B&Bs, I've noticed many hotels price per room, regardless of the number of people in it, which kind of makes logical sense to me. Some hotels have designed uh, single rooms at not half the price of a double. I'm in the UK and I've seen hotels with double rooms on offer for like 80 quid and singles for 60. But I tend to go for a double anyway. The difference between them isn't that single travels are discriminated against. It's more that some people are happier for a smaller room. And I'm sure just as you can fit one person in a double room, you could fit two people in a single. I've done that before. 
To me, it's not number of people that's the defining factor in these prices. It's comfort and facilities. I'm not obliged to take the single room at a bad rate. It very much depends on the hotel and the other things on offer in the room. I've never seen anything other than a hotel priced differently for one person than two. I've never seen a specific solo price at attractions, etc. Big groups get discounts everywhere, even in the UK, but that's usually for over 15 people and often pre-arranged. The only snag I find with travelling solo with regards to pricing is that if I really want to get off the beaten track, I need to hire a local guide or taxi, who'd usually have fixed rates. And of course, the more people travelling, the more you can split the cost. But again, this isn't active discrimination against solo travellers, it's merely the result of basic maths. Why should I get a discount on a service just because I'm on my own? This is how I ended up going to the RLC in Uzbekistan, for instance. I could have gone there on my own, but the price would have been horrendous. So what I did was I looked online, uh, in that case it was to TripAdvisor, uh, and found someone else that was going there around the time that I wanted to, so I joined with her. It may have only been one other person, but it did half the cost. As to if locals treat single travellers differently, it's hard to say as I've not been on a proper tour group holiday since 2002. I'll talk a bit more about that experience later. I often think as a solo traveller though, I'm kind of treated better, or at least not seen as much as merely a blind tourist and a bag of money. After a tour group passes through, there's often a collective sigh of relief amongst both me and the locals. There are aspects of solo travel that locals do pick up on though. I mentioned much of this in my sexuality podcast a few episodes ago, but to summarise, travelling alone in the sort of places I visit tends to arouse quite a bit of curiosity amongst the local people. The opening gambit is usually, where are you from? Which is shorthand for, what on earth is that Westerner doing here? But all the questions I get after that are related to my soliness. Are you married? Where is your wife? Questions about family, which some people may feel is slightly invasive, but it's more genuine confusion and amazement that someone certainly of my age could possibly be single. I've had several people offer their sisters or mothers to me. In one instance in Katuna in Benin, I got propositioned by two women in their early 60s while I was sitting in a cafe. Needless to say, I have never taken up anyone on these offers. The other question that comes up commonly is, um, well, any number of variations on do you feel safe? I see questions like that a lot, mostly from less well-travelled people, or my mother, and it's often more directed at women. Now I can, and indeed will, only vouch for myself. As I mentioned later, I don't like taking responsibility for other people. And, as a tall, middle-aged white man, I can only tell you if I feel safe or not travelling solo as a tall, middle-aged white man. Disclaimer, I do. My limits, my risk levels, are generally higher than most other people's, so I'll be quite happy, for example, wandering the unlit streets of West Africa where my biggest fear is falling down a hole in the pavement. The only time anyone's ever tempted to attack me was about 1am, a mile and a half from my old flat in West Bromwich, England. And I ran away, so yeah. All I will say on the solo female traveller thing, though, is that when I've been travelling, I've encountered more solo female travellers than any other demographic, in places as diverse as Poland, Uzbekistan, Chile and Nepal, while their ages have ranged from university student all the way up to retirees. Just know your own risks, take the precautions you feel you need, and ask around when you get there. Don't let anyone tell you what to do, and that goes either way. Go to Damascus if you like. I wouldn't, not quite yet. But that's just me. I asked a few of my Twitter buddies what they thought about solo travel, and this is their takes. We'll start with the oft-mentioned Laura from Tumbleweed Chronicles. My first solo trip was when I was studying abroad in Germany. I went to Liverpool for a long weekend. I loved the Beatles and I really wanted to see their hometown. But I struggled to find someone who wanted to come with, because for some reason Liverpool isn't exactly on most 20-year-old American radars. But I wasn't going to miss out on the city I wanted to visit just because I could, you know, I would go alone. And I discovered that weekend that I absolutely love solo travel. 
And that was almost a decade ago, and I currently tend to travel solo more often than not. And it's not so much that I actively seek out solo travel, it's just that I don't think to ask anyone to come with me. The only times that I do tend to actively ask is when I think it would make a trip easier. So for example, Ian and I were just in the Philippines, and this was my trip idea, and I invited him along because I've never been to Southeast Asia before, and I wanted somebody there with me while we kind of figured out how it worked. And I chose Ian specifically to ask because I don't want to travel to the developing world with someone who's never been, which crosses about half of my friends off, and then the other half are all struggling 20 or 30-somethings who can't fly to Asia right now. Ian, however, wouldn't complain about infrastructure issues, and he could fly to Asia. So, he's who I asked. And it was a great two weeks, and now I know how Southeast Asia works a bit more, and I won't need to find a travel buddy for the next time. I really like to travel solo because it gives you the freedom to do what you want without being beholden to other people. The only real downside that I've found is that it's nice to have a dinner buddy. In fact, one of the best trips I've ever had, and if I may throw in a quick plug, my own blog is over at tumbleweedchronicles.com, and I have a post specifically about this. But one of the best trips I've ever taken was a two-week trip in Greece, Vienna, and Budapest with one of my best friends. And her and I have very different ideas of what we wanted to see. So for the 15 days, we were maybe together for four of them, and the rest we did our own thing and just came back together in the evening. And this was great because we got what we wanted out of the trip, and we still had someone to share dinner with and conversation. Plus, that way we didn't get sick of each other, because you kind of run out of things to talk about after a while. <laughs> like when Ian and I were in the Philippines, we were definitely more chatty in the beginning of the trip towards the end, purely because we'd already chatted about everything. So I've traveled for over 10 years now, and um, a lot of my trips abroad have been solo trips. Uh, I have traveled with friends and family as well, but I've done a lot of solo, solo travel in my time. The reason I've ended up doing so much solo travel is purely because there were places that I wanted to go that no one else wanted to go to, or maybe they didn't have the budget at the time, or they didn't have the time to go. In 2012, I set off on a six-month uh, adventure, uh, basically traveling around, I think I did nearly uh, nearly eight or nine different countries in six months, all as a solo trip. But just because you travel solo doesn't mean you travel on your own. What I find is I tend to talk to more people when I'm traveling on my own than I do within when I'm with a group. And that's because, you know, I actually am a very social person. I like interacting with other people. So although although I've made the choice to travel on my own, um, it's not because I, I want to be on my own the entire time. I think it's it's great to spend time on your own and, uh, you know, go and explore things. Um, you know, you can literally have the freedom to do whatever you want, plan your day um, without having to answer to everyone, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm sure you'll appreciate, you know, organising things in a group when you ask where should we go, where should we eat? You know, it takes a good sort of 10, 15 minutes to make those decisions when you're in a group. Whereas when you're on your own, you can literally just this is where I'm going, this is where I'm stopping, you know, you make you make all those decisions. Becky from Becky the Traveller there, talking about why she prefers to travel solo, many of which are similar to mine, around freedom from the responsibilities that other people bring. My next contributor, Inga, also says the same things, but is a little more extreme about it. Why do I travel solo? I'm afraid I'd look like quite the misanthrope if I told you. The truth is that, that I like people as long as I don't have to travel with them. 
Usually when asked, I say that I just like to do my own thing, what I want, when I want, where I want. That seems to be the standard solar traveler response, and it's true, but it's only part of the truth for me. You see, unfortunately, I always feel somewhat responsible for the actions of my friends. So if I'm in a restaurant and someone in my company is rude to the waiter, I feel bad. And when traveling, there's so much more that can go wrong. What if my travel partner leaves a mess behind in the shared kitchen or bathroom uh, or insists on wearing mini shorts in rural India or refuses to tip in the U.S., thinks that giving sweets and money to poor kids is a brilliant idea? I can feel my pulse rising just talking about it. I can be a complete idiot at times as well, quite often even, but traveling is challenging enough without having the idiocy of others reflect on me. So in short, everybody's an idiot, and I'm so much of an idiot that I can't take responsibility for any more idiocy than my own. I told you I'd sound like a misanthrope. Deb from Tagalong Travel describes herself as an introvert, but one who likes talking with people on her own terms, similar to Becky. Unlike Becky, though, she finds a happy compromise in group travel. I like meeting new people. I just won't do it on my own. I will not strike up random conversations with strangers while sitting at a cafe. I just won't. But the right kind of group travel works for me because it's a structured and predictable way of interacting with others. Activity-based or adventure tours are the best because you're not constantly interacting with everybody. As long as there's enough alone time built into the trip, group tours are a great way for introverts to meet people. Now, why do I travel solo? See, as you've heard, everyone who prefers to travel solo does so for their own reasons. Mine are fairly simple, but can be boiled down to two main things. One, I'm an arsehole. And B, my tastes are weird. Let me explain this in a bit more detail. Some of this is merely practical. One of the rejected taglines of my blog, and by inference this very podcast, was I go to these places so you don't have to. I have a tendency to visit somewhat off-kilter places. This, coupled with the fact that I tend to travel at random times and take somewhat unorthodox routings, six-hour stopovers in airports on a Thursday night because it was cheaper or more convenient for me, rather than taking a direct route, means it's very unusual for people to want to travel with me, either because they can't spare the time, at my age, most of my friends work and have families, or because they go, where? When the choice for them is between Kyrgyzstan or Benidorm, my tastes are very different from most of the people I know. But more importantly, as a person, I'm very definitely an acquired taste, a bit like very malty dark beer. As far as I know, I don't actually taste of dark beer, but I'm sure someone listening to this may be able to confirm or deny that. What I mean by this is that both my travel style and my personality are the sort of things that people will either love or hate if they're around me for any period of time. The main part of this is, as you've probably already guessed, my lack of organisation. I mean, don't get me wrong, I plan things. I just do so on a vague, ooh, that would be a cool place to visit, how do I get there, sort of level. What I don't do is, you know, book things until the last minute. There are times when I'll wake up in the morning and not know what time, or even sometime even what country I'm going to be in that night. I mean, I'll have several ideas, several plans I could follow, but I don't commit to any of them until the very last minute. This annoys some of my friends who are much more structured and like to plan things out to the nth degree, which would, and does, annoy me at times because it makes me feel less free. I like to be able to react easily to changing circumstances. What, a landslide has blocked the road? Okay, I wasn't going to go that way anyway. Oh, it's raining. Let's take a day trip to this town with lots of stuff indoors. Even when I'm in a town, I'll do my own thing, like disappear down a side alley to take pictures of street art, or decide that it 
In fact, it would be cool to walk the seven miles to that museum because I'm loath to spend a couple of pounds on a bus. This latter point, my like of budget travel, extends to accommodation. It's amazing how few of my friends like the idea of staying in backpacker hostels, preferring instead the luxury of ensuite toilets and breakfast in bed. For me, a bed is simply that. It's a bed. It's somewhere to sleep. I don't see the point of going to, you know, say a hotel with a gym or a pool. I don't go to either when I'm at home, so why would I go to them when I'm abroad and exploring a town and country all day? Also, I guess I just don't like being guided by other people, which I know is really, really odd given that identify as a submissive. But there's a time and a place, and indeed I'm soon going to publish a very blog post on that very topic. Uh, but most of the time I'm fiercely individual. That said, I also don't really like the responsibility of having to make decisions that affect other people, lest they not like the decisions that I make. It's a very awkward combination of feelings, and the easiest way to mitigate it is the travel seller. Ultimately, too, there's the fact that, whisper it quietly, I'm not really that fond of being around people anyway. I think that's why me and Inga get on so well. I've always been a loner. Uh, I'm an only child and never really had that many friends in my childhood. Do not play the violin. So I've grown up in my own company. This means it's quite hard for me to spend time with other people anyway. I mean, while this doesn't explain my asexuality, it certainly connects really well with it. So spending time with other people in an enclosed space is much harder for me than it is for most people. I get angsty. I feel a regular need to cocoon myself away somewhere. And sometimes, if I feel I have no escape, I get grumpy and lash out at people. I have travelled with people before, but only once in an actual group setting. In 2002, I did a tour of China in a group with around 15 other people. See, China's one of those countries I wouldn't be keen on travelling to solo. In this case, it's more to do with the sheer amount of admin necessary to even buy a train ticket, coupled with the lack of ability to communicate. There's a couple of countries like this. For example, I'd love to go to India, but I think going alone would be just too intensive for a solo introverted traveller like myself. I'd need to travel at least with one other person, though Laura has suggested going in 2021, so maybe it'll finally happen. Anyway, China. Now, I was a much different person back in 2002, but even so, I was still somewhat of a reluctant group traveller. I found it awkward to speak to my travel companions and possibly came across as the weird one to avoid. They'd be right, but that's not the point. Fortunately, due to the group demographics, I ended up in a room on my own rather than sharing with a random female. So I did at least get my own space. Plus, the company that ran the tour, Imaginative Traveller, operate on a you-can-do-as-much-or-as-little-as-you-like-we-just-transfer-you-and-accommodate-you policy. So though it was a set itinerary, you could, as I say, do as much or as little on that itinerary as you wanted. This is why I'd never fancied cruising, as I'd be stuck on a vessel most of the time surrounded by the same people, only able to get off at certain points, and have such a small fixed time in places that it wouldn't get me enough time to explore a location to my satisfaction. I guess it's not so much the style of travel I'm irked by, it's the inflexible scheduling, the feeling that when we're not travelling, we're in a bit of a rush with time pressures. I have travelled a few times with friends, though. The first was in 2000, when I did an interrail trip around Spain, Portugal and Morocco with my then fiancé. I don't remember us arguing, but then we shared similar interests. Travel, alcohol, tickling, don't ask. So it seemed to work quite well. That remains to this day the only time I've done more than a few days city break with someone I've been dating, as I seem to have ended up in general dating people who either don't like travelling or who can't travel for whatever reason. Careless. It's slightly different with friends, though. For me, the most important thing is if I have to travel with someone, that I travel with someone who's either a solo traveller themselves and therefore understands the need to have time alone, or at least is comfortable with the concept of not having to do everything together, 
or someone with such differing interests that mean we end up doing our own thing by default, coming together in the evenings to chat about our very different days. And as you all have already heard, this is what's happened in Philippines. Laura is very comfortable with solo travel, and as already stated, she's a water nymph while I'm a wood elf. She did do a few of the island hopping tours while I spent my time exploring the towns, and we came together in the evenings to chat and drink beer. In addition, there was no expectation that on the days we weren't booked to do something, we had to spend time together. And even if we did do the same activity, for example, we went on a trip to the underground river on Palawan, which was spectacular, by the way, that we had to spend all our time talking to each other. When we ended up having to take the slow boat from El Nido to Curon Island, it took about seven hours, and we probably spoke to each other twice. Indeed, we were in different parts of the boat for much of it, which for many people would be angsty, but for us felt perfectly natural because we're both comfortable being solo. Whether Laura would travel again with me is another question. She refused to share a tent with me in one of the hostels because, quote, I fart too much, unquote. I think she also got a bit fed up of being asked by not just the locals, but other travellers that we met. So is he your husband or your father? But we'll see. Anyway, continuing with my experiences of solo travel, we have the return of the pod's worst jingle. Lesser known destination of the week. Recently, I spent a week in Bangladesh, itself a country that isn't often visited by tourists. Indeed, in the whole time I was there, I saw maybe only three or four Westerners. But I thought I'd talk about one town in particular, partly because it's quite unlike the impressions you might have about the country, but also because I travelled there completely solo, and it's a great example of the things that can happen when you travel solo. The town is called Silhet. It's about a six-hour bus ride from Dakar, for about £4, uh, an hour and a half of which is literally getting out of Dakar. Alternatively, one can take a 45-minute flight for around £35. It's in the far east of Bangladesh, close to the border with the Indian states of Meghalaya and Assam. Now, Assam is, of course, famous for tea, and indeed the tea-growing area stretches across the border. Silhet and nearby towns like Sri Mangal are noted for their extensive tea plantations that surround them. One of them, Lakatura, apparently covers an area of about 1,600 acres, about 900 football pitches and walking around them is a very popular way to spend a chilled day. February isn't quite tea season. Uh, People start picking the tea leaves more towards the end of March, which made the plantation a little quieter than it often is. But that just meant I could admire the scenery more. I'm not terribly fond of tea, I find it quite boring. But even I had a couple of glasses in the town. Lots of sugar and absolutely no milk, of course, which isn't the way the locals drink it, but we're all different. On my way to one of them, I got overtaken by a young local man on a motor scooter who refused to allow me to decline the offer of a lift. We ended up cruising around one of those plantations, stopping to take pictures, and even giving me a shot of the local moonshine, being brewed in an obscure and distant part of the plantation beyond the villages. It was foul. But this is one of those aspects of solar travel. He obviously spotted me, a foreigner walking alone, and was curious about me, and wanted to show me something about his hometown. And though that it was all purely curiosity, he made no move to want payment or anything like that. It was very much a genuine act. A similar thing happened when I was walking around the city itself. I was taking pictures in the town by the Shahi Aidga Square, when I got accosted by a group of four young men who, after taking some selfies, wondered who I was and where I came from. Turns out they're all students at the local college and we had a decent chat, some tea and a rendition of some Bangladeshi rap music, which in my head reminded me a bit of MC Solar, all again with no overt purpose other than to have a chat. It's a very friendly place. Tea is not the only reason why a Brit might feel at home in Silhet. 
It was estimated back in the 1980s that 95% of all Bangladeshis living in the UK came from this particular part of Bangladesh. Indeed, the town itself is twinned with the London borough of Tower Hamlets. Brick Lane, yes. It has also been estimated that some 90 to 95% of so-called Indian restaurants in the UK are run by people of Bangladeshi origin. It therefore follows that the vast majority of Indian food made in the UK is made by people from Silhet. Indeed, the chap who ran the hotel I was staying in in the town used to run an Indian restaurant in Gloucester, near the cathedral. It's therefore a great place to get a biryani or do piazza. Just don't expect a lager with it. The scenery around Silhet isn't just made up of tea plantations either. This is a region of rolling hills as well as rivers. And there are waterfalls, temples and good walking areas, especially closer to the Indian border, places like Jaflong. Going to these places really feels like a completely different Bangladesh to the crowded, noisy, polluted cities. One such site, north of Sillet Airport, is the Ratagul Swamp Forest area. It's a simple tuk-tuk ride from town, which will drop you off at a small wharf from where you can hire a boat and oarsman, often a teenager, who will sell you out for an hour or two on the water. It's a really nice woodland with gentle rivers wandering through, very peaceful and serene, save the boats of locals who all want the obligatory selfies with you as you're the amazing foreigner. In one part of the waterway is a lookout tower, from the top of which you can look out across the whole wilderness. It's a very beautiful place and so unexpected compared with the rest of Bangladesh. As you can probably tell from some of the things I've said, one of the aspects about, I don't know if it's about travelling alone, but certainly about travelling in Bangladesh, is the number of times that locals want selfies with you. And there's no demographic to this. It's, you're a 20-year-old student, I want a selfie with you. You're a family of three generations. I want a selfie with you. Everybody wanted a selfie with me. And that's something that it's quite weird, especially as a solo traveler, because you're used to traveling alone and you have all of these people just always wanting to talk to you. It takes some getting used to, but we get there. Well, that just about wraps up this episode. Next time, I'll be talking about international borders. Are they a necessary feature of modern socio-political society or do they just get in the way? and whether anyone has any interesting tales of crossing them. Until then, have a good month, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. I'm going to try and take my own advice. That sort of thing never ends well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.